Hi, everybody. Welcome to the penultimate session of The Treason of Isengard. We are almost done with the book. And yes, Tara, my power is back, fortunately. Um, I just restored power to my house uh, about four hours ago. So uh, finally, um, that uh, was uh, almost three full days. We were without power here. Uh, so I'm not running off the generator tonight. That was a bit of an adventure last night. I know uh, the Twitch feed went down a couple times uh, during last night's session, which I think was probably because of uh, the intermittent brownouts of my power from my generator. But anyway, so um, we should be uh, we should be all set now. But anyway, so glad to be back with you guys again, uh, and uh, I'm uh, looking forward to. Uh, some serious progress here. It is really fun to be getting into the Rohan story, which I've been really looking forward to uh, <laughs> sort of getting past the breaking of the Fellowship. Isn't it interesting, right, how, um, you know, there are some of these parts that have it took so much revision, you know, the number of times that he redid and rethought uh, the the breaking of the Fellowship. And then, you know, we're getting to the, you know, these new chapters, these totally unanticipated, this totally unanticipated direction of the story. Literally unanticipated, literally direction, right? Like it wasn't planning uh, to go west across Rohan, right? But, um, uh, and, and, you know, all this stuff is just rolling right out. We got the, the Uruk High chapter, the, uh, the Treebeard chapter, the White, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the White Wizard chapter, you know, the uh, Gandalf's chapter from today, um, all of which just seem to roll straight out, and that's uh, always really, really fun to see. Um, so anyway, uh, let's um, let's. Oh, well, actually, wait before we before we jump straight in. Uh, one quick announcement I wanted to make, of course, this being the penultimate session of our Treason of Isengard class, that means we are coming in closer and closer to uh, the election uh, for our next one. So I believe that uh, Dr. Powell, the chair of the, uh, of the Council of the Wise, uh, appointed Saturday, the 4th of November, as the, uh, uh, the, the moment... Uh, when nominations are going to be closed. So if you if you have if you're on the council of the wise and you have a suggestion for a nominee, uh, you know if you have a nominee uh, for what we should be talking about next, uh, please do uh, get involved in that process. Um, you should have received an email uh, from Dr. Powell just in the last few days reminding you uh, of that process. So yeah, Nancy, there are some really interesting nominations. I try to I try to stay completely out of the nomination process, um, but uh, I always look forward with great anticipation to the list of finalists, uh, which I think is going to be, we're going to be voting on next week. So uh, the idea, as I said last time, I think, is we're hoping to start the next class after American Thanksgiving. So either the either the last Wednesday of November or the first Wednesday of December, we'll begin uh, our next session, which of course will not be Tolkien because we never do two authors in a row. So anyway, that's the... Uh, uh, that's the 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 fun thing uh, that is coming up here that I want to make sure to remind everybody of. All right, now with that in mind, uh, let's jump into uh, uh, our discussion here tonight. So we were in the middle of uh, the Treebeard chapter, and uh, we sort of interrupt to have him uh, talking, thinking about how to get characters back together. Because you'll recall, of course, that originally. Uh, the ones who were going to meet Gandalf was going to be Legos and Gimli when they were heading up uh, to the north, right? Um, but of course, that's that's been pitched. Now Legos and Gimli are heading, uh, you know, across you know west and north across Rohan, 
with Aragorn. So we've got to figure out some way to get them back together with Gandalf. So how do they meet Gandalf? It should really be Sam or Frodo who saw vision in the mirror of Galadriel, right? Because, uh, and, and this is a really interesting impulse, right? The, the fact that uh, Frodo sees Gandalf in the mirror of Galadriel, we saw that was in the very first draft of the, of the, of the mirror vision, right? Um, so that's part of the initial conception of what Frodo sees in the mirror. So it does make some sense uh, that the one who sees the vision of Gandalf returning should be the one who first meets with Gandalf returning. Um, but that thought seems to get him into some uh, into some trouble, right? It seems to, to run him into some difficulties here uh, moving forward. Um, sorry, I'm advancing prematurely there. Okay. A possible return of Gandalf would be as an old bent beggar with a battered hat coming to the gates of Minas Tirith. He is let in. After, at Siege's darkest hour, when outer walls have fallen, he throws off cloak and stands up white, right? So the, the sh- you know, Gandalf uncloaks himself there, right? Uh, in the middle of the battle at the Siege's darkest hour. Certainly a very dramatic reveal of Gandalf, right? He leads sortie, or he comes with horses of Rohan riding on struck out Arfaxed Shadowfax. Okay. Um, uh, so, okay, so concept number or like new concept number one right is uh, maybe it should be Frodo or Sam who meets him or maybe he should come in one way or the other at a super dramatic moment at Minas Tirith itself right so he's going to be just revealed in the middle of the battle so Gandalf basically uh notice what that suggests right he he's he's considering the idea of having Gandalf's return be the U catastrophe that turns the tide of the battle the whole at siege's darkest hours when uh, darkest hour when outer walls have fallen points to that really clearly, right? So uh, we I, that seems to me really indicative of how he is understanding uh, the uh, uh, the return of Gandalf, like the significance of the return of Gandalf. Um, so okay, all right. Another possibility: cut out rescue of Frodo by Sam. Let Sam get lost and meet Gandalf, and have adventures getting into Minas Tirith. But it was Frodo who saw vision of Gandalf. Also, Sam saw vision of Frodo lying under dark cliff, pale, and of himself on a winding stair. Uh, so, I, 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 this is, of course, far from the first time that we have seen him considering a, um, you know, a, a, a rather striking uh, alteration to his plot. Right? Um, you know, the idea of having. We're going to remove Sam from Frodo. We're actually going to let Frodo go on alone without Sam. So we're going to undo everything connected with Sam in Mordor, just so that we can have him be the one to meet uh, to meet Gandalf. That seems extremely radical, <laughs> right? Um, but again, we've seen him consider things uh, that um, um, that strange before. Remember when he was going to put Merry and Pippin in, uh, uh, in Minas Morgul, right? Instead of, uh, Frodo and Sam. Um, but then, if so, but, but I, I love how we can see him talking himself out of this almost right away. Right. Well, on the one hand, uh, uh, you know, it was Frodo that saw the vision of Gandalf. And in addition, there's that other vision that Sam had, and we, we need to make that you know, come, come true as well. So, but what my favorite part is how his reasoning against, um, how his reasoning against having Frodo or Sam be the one who meets Gandalf 
ends up uh, solving a problem or coming close to solving a problem, right? And of himself on a winding stair. The winding stair must be cut in rocks and go up from Gorgoroth to Watchtower. Cut out Minas Morgul. Oh, right. So remember, when last we met Frodo and Sam, they were still stuck in Minas Morgul, and it wasn't really clear how they were going to get out of Minas Morgul. So this idea now of, okay, there's going to be a winding stair cut in the rocks that they're going to go up and there's going to be a watchtower up on top. So we're going to still, we can still have Frodo uh, poisoned by spiders and captured by the orcs and rescued by Sam. But by removing that from Minas Morgul, we solve a lot of the problems of how on earth are they going to possibly get out of Minas Morgul. Um, Yeah, yeah. And uh, Tara, that's a really great point. Tara says, I love how he refers to things he has previously written as if it was history that he must remain consistent with. Um, Yeah, Tara, I mean, we've talked before about, um, you know, how uh, at various points, especially like in his letters and stuff, when he refers to the text, he's always, uh, he's never answering, answering authoritatively, you know, like an author. He's always answering like a reader, right? Uh, And it's really fun, as you say, to see him uh, think that way in his own writing process as well, right? Just in his notes to himself. Uh, he's, you know, citing uh, the text and being like, no, no, that contradicts uh, the, the received text, right? We have, to, we have to sort of work around that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James says so that the two tower. James Stevens says the two towers could have been uh, uh, Minas Tirith and Minas Morgul. Yeah, yeah, James. You know, one thing that's really interesting is um, the Tolkien at several different times um, n- named different towers as being the two towers in question. Like it's one of the great sort of trick questions, right? Which two towers does the title of the book refer to? Right. And it's, it's sort of a trick question because he actually answered that question differently on different occasions. Um, and anyway, so like that's uh, that's kind of fun. Right. But as we see this develop, it's easy to see how um, it's easy to see how he would have thought about it differently at different times. Uh, in fact, um, Stephen is wondering if it took so long to get rid of Bingo and Odo because of the whole received text thing. You know, I wonder, Stephen, of course, the two things are different, right? Bingo is just sort of a name change, and Odo is, uh, you know, a a character that he kept wanting to change and then not changing. But that's exactly, Stephen, the the latter, certainly with Odo, um, the fact that he would resolve on cutting him out and then keep bringing him back, right? Keep uh, finding ways to conserve the role that Odo had played, even if he's altering it and tweaking it or combining it. Um, that does seem to be part of that same, uh, uh, that same, that same impulse. I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Brian, now you're right that he's not faithful to everything that he's written. I would also add to your, to that observation, Brian, that it's easy for us as we're reading, like we know, where it needs to go, right? So 
consider two radical changes, right? One radical change, which is a change from the way the text had been going to the way that we know it's eventually going to be in the published text, right? And another suggested change where he considers the possibility of doing, of making a different radical change, which is away from what we know is going to be in the published text and into something completely different, such as removing Sam from Frodo and having him be the one to meet Gandalf. Um, those two situations may be very similar, but they impact us very differently as we read them, right? You know, it's, it's uh, when the story is going in, in, in the, a way which is not the way that it's ultimately going to go, and then he shifts it, and it finally begins to fall into line of what we've been waiting for and expecting, that feels like a, a natural change, right? A, a, a gentle and appropriate change. Whereas when he's like, hey, maybe we'll send Marion Pippin off to Minas Morgul, that seems like a, an outrageous violation of the natural order, right? So I think, you know, one thing that's interesting as a phenomenon that I've been observing in myself is um, sort of the strength of my reactions to some of his proposed uh, outlines and, and projections uh, on that basis. Um I still think that the idea of taking Sam and uh, removing him from Frodo and making him, just in order to make him to be the one to meet up with Gandalf, uh, I, I would still defend the word radical or extreme, you know, in defining that. But, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, there's more, right? More roughly scribbled notes were added. Trotter sends Legolas and Gimli with Boromir to Minas Tirith. He himself wanders looking for the hobbits. He meets Gandalf. He is tempted, but forsakes his ambition. What are Treebeard and Ents to do about Saruman? Seek help of Rohiroth? Couple things here. First, this is that passage where um, Christopher was not sure about the dating, right? Because Boromir's still alive in that latter one, so Christopher is wondering if maybe the, that note about sending Legolas and Gimli with Boromir might predate some of this other stuff, because, you know, Boromir, he's, you know, we have Boromir dying in the in the latest version uh, of, the, uh, of the Breaking of the Fellowship. I'm not so sure. I'm not, I'm not convinced about that. No, I mean, looking at this whole passage, right? Through this whole set of notes here, we see him willing to radically reconsider a whole bunch of things that he's doing. I see no reason to think that he's not radically, that he's not willing to reconsider uh, Boromir's death. I mean, Boromir's death is a small uh, and recent thing compared to um, the uh, uh, the, like, Sam going with Frodo to Mordor, right? That's been in there from the beginning. Uh, you know, from, you know, Sam's been along since Frodo's very first trip to Mordor. Uh, so I don't see why we might not think he would be considering re, uh, reconsidering that. Um, but of course, you guys are immediately focusing on, on what is, to me, the biggest mystery of this passage as well. He is tempted, that is, Trotter, Aragorn, is tempted, but forsakes his ambition. What What ambition? I think, actually, great first question, Brandon. Brandon says, wait, who's tempted, right? He meets Gandalf, he is tempted. Trotter, presumably, right? I mean, it could conceivably be Gandalf. Gandalf is actually the uh, the most recent, you know, proper noun before the pronoun there. Um, but um, 
the parallelism of the sentence suggests, you know, he himself wanders, he meets Gandalf, he is tempted. Um, so we've got, you know, the three sentences that start with he, the first two of which are clearly and definitely Trotter. Uh, so I think it's got to be Trotter who's being tempted, especially since ambition seems an odd word to use of Gandalf. I mean, it's not that we can't imagine Gandalf being tempted, but not having ambition exactly. Whereas Trotter with the whole, you know, like, uh, we know that even in the earliest projections, he was going to be named the successor of the Lord of Minas Tirith when the Lord of Minas Tirith died. So some kind of political ambition on uh, Aragorn's part, you know, seems certainly very appropriate. Um, but what is it? I'm not sure. I... I Now that's interesting. Brandon is wondering if could it maybe be Boromir who's tempted? First of all, again, the par- the parallelism of this passage would make it a real strain to say the third he, the first two he's are clearly Trotter, but the third one, for some reason uh, and without provocation, is back to Boromir. That would be hard for me to maintain. And besides which, what's Boromir's ambition? I mean, Boromir's the heir of the Lord of Minas Tirith. We don't have any king and steward situation yet. That's not been, that's not even been put on the table yet. So there's the Lord of Minas Tirith and Boromir is his oldest son. So, I mean, he has presumably the ambition to succeed his father, but that doesn't necessarily seem to be an, a, a temptation, right? I mean, he's the heir, right? Uh, the heir succeeding the king isn't like a temptation situation necessarily, right? So what then? Um, I'm gonna, but so I, I'm, I'm gonna assume Trotter, right? He is tempted, but forsakes his ambition. Um, a couple of you are asking, could it be the ring? I don't think so, because the ring's gone, right? Uh, Frodo and Sam presumably are still off, right? This is Trotter sends Legolas and Gimli. This is a post-breaking of the Fellowship thing, right? So the the whole point is that. Frodo and Sam are gone, right? So the ring is away. Though I suppose if he's sending Legolas and Gimli with Boromir, where's he going? He wanders looking for the hobbits, but which hobbits, one wonders, right? That is, is he looking for Merry and Pippin? Or is he looking for Frodo and Sam? If he's looking for Frodo and Sam, potentially the ring temptation could be in play, but still, I don't see it. Um, He himself wanders looking for the hobbits. We already have, you know, Aragorn... um, We already have Aragorn uh, with Legolas and Gimli going after um, uh, Merry and Pippin. So, looking for the hobbits... I gotta think that's presumably Merry and Pippin. Um, especially, of course, since he's meeting Gandalf in that context. Uh, yeah, I don't... Um, Lynn, that seems most likely. Lynn suggests the temptation to go to Minas Tirith right away. Um, and Brandon was thinking uh, was thinking the same thing, too. That's that would be my vote, and that would be my vote because that's a temptation that we actually see Aragorn still undergoing. Right, he still feels the temptation. His heart is longing for Minas Tirith. Um, he 
sings the song to Gondor, right? When he sees Gondor off in the distance. Um, we know that he yearns to head down straight to Minas Tirith, but he needs to resist the temptation to abandon his friends and go on to Minas Tirith um, for the sake of his own ambition. Ambition is still a really interesting word, though, especially since we've not seen him have ambition. He was sort of elected the heir of the Lord of Minas Tirith or the successor, I should say, of the Lord of Minas Tirith after his death in those early outlines. But even there, he was sort of unwilling to take it. I mean, he 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 was... It was thrust upon him. He didn't seek it. And afterwards, he doesn't try to be king. Um, yeah, Josiah's wondering if, it, if Gandalf is in some sense prompting his temptation. Josiah, the fact that he... We hear about the temptation after he meets Gandalf is makes it even hotter, doesn't it? Um, because that temptation to go straight to Minas Tirith, you'd think would happen right away, right? I mean, if he's already wandering looking for the hobbits, you'd think that one, which does seem to me the most plausible temptation he could be resisting, you'd like, that's already passed, isn't it, already? Um, I, you know, I don't know. Um Maybe Kimber's wondering if perhaps upon meeting Gandalf, he's tempted to now break off his search and go straight to Minas Tirith now that Gandalf is kind of, uh, you know, having met Gandalf and feeling that Gandalf has things under control, he's going to go, going to turn around and head straight to Minas Tirith right away. Um, It is, of course, even in the published text, it's a bit of a leap of faith, right, for Aragorn to not go to Minas, you know, from Fangorn, right? Where is he going to head from Fangorn? Um, you know, going down to Edoras is not the, does not seem like a shortcut, you know, to, uh, uh, to Minas Tirith, which is what he wants to do. So potentially, potentially there's that. Um, yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm really, I'm really not sure. Um, yeah. Right, exactly, exactly, Kate. If if meeting Gandalf lets him off the hook for finding Merry and Pippin, right, exactly. It, so the temptation would be, okay, now I can, with a clear conscience, head straight down to, to Minas Tirith. And the only thing that would be... It's hard, like, see, the difficult thing is characterizing that as a temptation, right? Because it's a, like a perfectly logical thing to do. There's, there's no obvious reason why he shouldn't do that, right? Um, that is, in what sense is it a temptation? Unless it's a temptation to break his word to Aemir that he'll bring the horses straight back, right? But you'd think that could be gotten around, right? Um, yeah. Um, I don't know, like I said, it still doesn't seem like much of a temptation, exactly. Um, I, I mean... Almost, because again, if Gandalf says, no, you should go down to Edoras, then he has to, you know, decide, am I going to do, you know, to trust what Gandalf says and do that, even though that's not what I really want to do. But I just, I still have a hard time characterizing that as a temptation. But, um, anyway, um, but, uh, so... I'm right where you guys are. I don't think I understand that sentence at all. Um, 
I'm wondering, the one thing I'm wondering is if this reference to his ambition, that seems to be new. And so I'm wondering if, if maybe sort of the seeds of Aragorn as future king uh, are possibly just starting to germinate there in that sentence with this idea of, of Aragorn's ambition. Um, I love also the what are Treebeard and ends to do about Saruman. He doesn't know, right? Um, Tolkien doesn't know. How are the ends going to... Um, and remember, this is one of the other things that I love, you know, Tara, thinking back to what you were saying about how he talks about his book and stuff. This is another thing that I love about him, about Tolkien's writing process. Um, so often when he is trying to figure out something, like there's a problem that he doesn't know how to resolve, and then he resolves it, he'll still keep the problem in the story. Like somebody in the story will voice the problem that he originally himself had and then, and then eventually figured out. Um, so this is, of course, another example of that. Um, remember Merry and Pippin when they're talking to each other. Are, are, isn't it Pippin who is like, you know, Isengard doesn't sound like the kind of place for ends to tackle, right? You know, he's, he's like, what, what are Treebeard and the ends going to do about Saruman, right? And then Mary is like, well, I, I don't know. I think they might be able to handle it. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, so and so I, I, I just love how those, uh, those uncertainties sort of remain embedded in the text uh, that way. Um, and um, yeah, Tony, I agree. We don't seem to be... This is an interesting point. So, uh, Tomas, you were just talking about this as well. Uh, just to go over... It's going to come up again in a little bit. Um, for those of you who haven't heard this, one of the things that Tolkien in later interviews talks about, about the Ents marching to Isengard, uh, is that it fulfilled a, a sort of a childhood, um, or rather corrected a childhood disappointment of his, that he always loved the bit in Macbeth, Shakespeare's Macbeth, uh, when great Burnham Wood, the high, der- high Dunsinane Hill shall come, that prophecy of the wood uh, coming to the uh, to Dunsinane Hill uh, and assaulting the castle, and that he thought that the actual fulfillment of the prophecy of like the army with like holding branches over their heads as they came was really lame um, and disappointing, uh, and that he sort of fantasized about having the forest actually rise. Now, I'm not questioning that, of course. Uh, I mean, he said that 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 he felt that way, and I have no reason to question it. But what is clear, Tony, as you were just suggesting. It's not the first impulse, right? He's not looking for a way to find have a forest attack, and because he's got the obvious opportunity here, right? And it seems not to have occurred to him yet. Um, he's still wondering. Seek help of Rohiroth, right? Uh, he's kind of still grasping at straws, um, and uh, uh, yeah. So it's it's uh, it's very interesting to see how gradually that appeals to him. Now, I think when it, when it happens, we're going to, we're going to get, we'll get to the Macbeth moment in a minute when I think we do get great Burnham Wood, uh, finally in fulfillment. Um, but it's really, it's really interesting that that's not his first impulse, right? Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Uh, so back to, uh, Treebeard's 
dialogue, his conversation. Now, of course, so much of this chapter was uh, almost exactly like the uh, the final version from its very first draft, right? So Christopher only gives us a few passages to uh, to point some things out there. Neither this country nor anything else outside the Golden Wood is what it was when Celeborn was young. Remember, this is, of course, in response to Merry and Pippin saying, why did Celeborn warn us against your wood, right? Taura Tavaria, Tumbala Morna, Tumbala Tauria, Landa Tavare. This is what they used to this is what they used to say, but we have changed many things. He means that they have weeded out rotten hearted trees such as are in the old forest. That's amazing. A total reversal from the final text, right? Um and kind of shocking in a couple different ways. Not least of which is that, I mean, imagine, right? Imagine that, um, like, what Treebeard is saying in response is like, oh, things around here have changed so fast that Caliborn can't keep up, right? What does it say about Caliborn if he can't keep up with the rapid pace of change among Treebeard and the ants, right? Um, Oh yeah, no, they've done they've uh, done some reforming, right? Things are things are things are might are much better now. Um but uh, anyway, okay. So it's uh uh but then but then but then he changed it, right? Things have changed, but it is still true in places, he says. What do you mean? What is true? said Pippin. I am not sure I know, and I am sure I could not explain it to you. But there are no longer any evil trees here, none that are evil according to their kind and light. There are no longer any evil trees here. Um, so again, so that he changes it, but the the concept, the idea that Fangorn has changed from the old days, right? Uh, that Fang that Fangorn used to be full of evil trees like Old Man Willow, um, but now it's not. It, that's not true anymore. Um, uh, that's that's really interesting, right? Um, and he can't explain exactly how it happens, um, which is, the, the, to me, the most significant shift from the previous version, you know, from these two versions here and these two paragraphs is, but we have changed many things, which makes it sound like the ants have gone around and weeded out the old, the evil trees, right? The rotten-hearted trees. Um, you know, they've, like, culled the old forest and, and destroyed them all or something, right? Um, I mean, maybe they just eventually converted them and talked them around, but I, I it's kind of hard to imagine that. Um, the mystery of the process by which the evil trees were removed, right? I'm not sure I know, and I'm sure, I am sure that I could not explain to you, um, is what he sort of uh, settles on. Um yeah, yeah. Um, Tony, great question. Uh, Tony asks, is it fair to say that he hasn't settled on a consistent pronunciation and spelling system yet, and that's why Celeborn is still Celeborn with a K? Um, Tony, I don't think it's necessarily that his own pronunciation system is altering. Necess- I mean, that that I think may be, but it's. I, I don't think that that's what that indicates. Um, one of the things that he really... Uh, kind of went back and forth with was how to represent things so that it would be easy for people to pronounce and so that it would look right, right? Um, 
And sometimes he would not just appeal to his own sense of what would look right in how to spell a word, um, but he would uh, sort of um, work with what he believed would be the reaction from the general public, right? Uh, so, for instance, he he um, thought about, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, he toyed with changing Galadriel's name um, so that instead of a D in the middle, it was a DH, the the, so it would be Galadriel uh, instead of Galadriel. But he decided that the DH consonantal combination, which he, you know, was using in his Elvish languages um, beforehand, uh, looked uncouth to modern English readers. And so he wanted to avoid it, especially in a, in a central important name. And so he uh, just went back to a, a D uh, in her name instead of the DH. I think I'm remembering that correctly. But I know, so uh, my sense, Tony, is that he's using a K because it's uh, like that's a pronunciation correct. Right. No one's going to look at K-E-L-E-B-O-R-N and mispronounce that. Right. Kelleborn. Clearly, it's pronounced Kelleborn with a K. Right. Um, when he changes it from Kelleborn with a K to Kelleborn with a C, the pronunciation doesn't change. But he's kind of taking a step to say, no, I really want it to be a C. And he's kind of taking more of a risk that people are going to pronounce it wrong, which they do all the time. In fact. Right. Um, it's uh, one of the most annoying things about the uh uh, the sort of old, there's an old 1980s unabridged recording of Unfinished Tales. There's never been another one, sadly. Um, uh, I, I have an old copy of that. And uh, the most annoying thing about it is that it's it, it, the, the reader says Galadriel and Celeborn all the way through the of Galadriel and Celeborn chapter, and it's really hard to listen to. Um, but, um, yeah. So anyhow, okay. Tara, great question. Uh, what what does he mean by none that are evil according to their kind and light? I don't know. I, I think I could explain it if he just said none that are evil according to their kind. Right? That would suggest that there are some kinds of trees that might be, you know, a little rougher around the edges than others, right? A little more, maybe, I don't know, prone to violence or a little more cantankerous or something like that, right? But, you know, they're not evil according to their kind, right? You know, there are some species, some kinds of trees that are sweet and soft-spoken and, and, and lovely and others which are, like, grumpier and crankier and stuff, but they're not evil, right? That's just... That's just the way that they're kind are, and it's it's fine. It's good, right? Um, so, um, you know, that's uh, that I could I could get, but the light, none that are evil according to their kind, and light. I wonder. I don't know. Jennifer's wondering if maybe you know, did they not get enough light while they were growing? Right? Did they get kind of stunted? That would that would seem to be sort of level of of growth right um but uh yeah i don't know is it the way that they're sort of straining for the light so it could that would be if it were light in a literal sense which of course given that we're talking about plants seems to be a reasonable thing it could be uh tim as you suggest more along the line of uh 
the way that you would say the same thing about a person, right? According to his lights, meaning according to his understanding, right? Um, his 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 level of understanding. So, um, so this is where like how you might say, or they they would have said this in like the nineteenth century to say like uh, you know he's a he's a good man according to his lights, right? Meaning he's a, he's as good a man as he knows how, right? Which means then presumably. Had he been taught better, uh, he might be better, right? But given given how he was raised, right, given his breeding, uh, as they would have said in the 19th century, you know, there's only so much you can expect. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, but normally, I think, isn't that, isn't that normally pluralized? Lights. I just said it that way, and I think that that's. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Rachel. Maybe Rachel suggesting you know, some trees thrive in shade, and others need lots of sun. So maybe, maybe it's just another a sort of a treeish way, Rachel, of talking about different kinds, right? The different sort of characters and, um, you know, sort of species tendencies, right? Of different trees. Um, I mean, I feel like we can understand the general purport of what he's saying, right? Again, none are, they may differ, right? But none of them are, are, are actively evil or are, are corrupted compared to others of, you know, that are, that are, that are similar to them. Um, but, um, Yeah. Yeah, so, um, but of course you'll note. But he's still keeping mysterious the process by which they were what weeded out, changed something. But it used to be true that there were evil trees, but there aren't evil trees anymore. Somehow. So how did this happen? Things went wrong there. This is in the Old Forest. So what's up with the Old Forest? Why is the Old Forest so messed up compared to Fangorn? Things went wrong there in the dark, changed to Elder Days. Some old sorcery, I expect, changed to some old shadow of the great dark lay there. They say that even the men that came out of the sea were caught in it, and some of them fell into the shadow. But that is only a rumor to me. Anyway, they have no tree herds there, no one to care for them. It is a long, long time since the ants walked away from the banks of the Baranduin. Okay, this is really, really fascinating. So, some old sorcery, I expect. Doesn't that make you think right away of the of the Barrow Downs? Right, that uh, you know how how you know due to sorcery or even perhaps necromancy, uh, you know, uh, evil spirits were sent and they entered into the barrows, right? And so it seems like maybe some, some similar kind of sorcery. Uh, in any case, some evil influence from the outside, right, came and marred uh, the old forest. Um, I like the change from some old sorcery, which makes it sound like the work of a person, like arguably maybe the necromancer, uh, into a more sort of atmospheric thing, right? Some old shadow of the great dark lay there. So this is Morgoth's influence, Right. Um, Okay, so some remnant of Morgoth's influence lay over it, and even the men that came out of the sea were caught in it. Yeah. Uh, And became ringwraiths, right? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we have... Uh, so, I, given that we have the Barrow Downs right next to the Old Forest, uh, it seems like he's thinking of... The, I mean, I, th- that's why, especially with some old sorcery, I can't help but think of the... Um, you know, Angmar and uh, the 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 dark spirits entering into the barrows and stuff. It seems like Treebeard is suggesting the same kind of thing. So some of the men were connected, you know, even the old Numenorians, like in the Numenorian civil wars. Um, and uh, now Josiah is asking, is this the first hint of the split of Arnor? Well, gosh, Josiah, help me remember. We weren't, we didn't get much of the history of Arnor at all. Right, we had the last thing we had, and this was back in the Council of Elrond stuff earlier in this book. Right, the Numenorians get kicked out of Minas Tirith, and they so they go up to Fornost, right, and they establish the capital of a new realm at Fornost until Fornost is destroyed, and then they live in hiding. Right, so that's still kind of a still kind of a two stage problem up there, right? Two stage process. Uh, I don't recall the name Arnor being used at all. Um, but it certainly... Um, it could be. The the fact that he's talking about even the men that came out of the sea were caught in it does suggest that maybe he is beginning to think about not just, not just the kingdom of Arnor being destroyed from without, but the kind of internal corruption that we see, which will eventually blossom into the, you know, Arnorian civil wars and the, the defection of Rudauer and all that stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Josiah Moore, the idea of the Northern Realm, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good point. Tony is recalling that uh, the memories that Tom shared with the Hobbits are still more or less the same as they are in the published text, so... Um, yeah, Tony, we get there like the kingdoms rising and falling, right? And uh um the you know, the new and greedy swords and all that business, right? Um so it could be a similar thing that uh that Treebeard is referring back to here. Um Yeah. Um and Yana, I agree. I think the Barrow Downs are being hinted at when he talks about the men of the sea being caught and being caught into it and falling into the shadow. That seems to me very likely. Um but, and yes, as uh, somebody was, yeah, Arthur, um, the Ents used to be familiar, you know, they, they, they were up at the banks of the Baranduin, right? So yes, Treebeard and other Ents used to hang out in the Shire, or by Buckland at least, right? But it's been a long time uh, since they left. Um and one wonders why, right? Is it because of this? Is it because of the sh- the shadow of the great dark that lay there? Um, we're not really, uh, we're not really, you know, it doesn't really explain that. Anyway, then one of my favorite passages. Um, when Treebeard says, Tom Bombadil, um, uh, I couldn't I just my memory of Tom, you know, uh, Tom Bombadil's verse form, uh, you know, doing a spondaic beat on Tom Bombadil every time, and then seeing Treebeard put it together as one long Entish type word, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadil, um, Tom, Tom Bomb. It just sounds like an Entish word, right? 
Um, but anyway, okay. What about Tom Bombadil, though? asked Pippin. He lives on the downs close by. He seems to understand trees. What about whom? said Treebeard. Tom Bombadil? Tom Bombadil? So that is what you call him. Oh, he has got a very long name. He understands trees right enough, but he is not an ent. He is no herdsman. He laughs and does not interfere. He never made anything go wrong, but he never cured anything either. Why, why, it is all the difference between walking in the fields and trying to keep a garden, between between passing the time of a day to a sheep on the hillside, or even maybe sitting down and studying sheep, till you know what they feel about grass and being a shepherd. Sheep get like shepherd, and shepherd like sheep, it is said, very slowly. But it is quicker and closer with ensign trees. Like some men and their horses and dogs, only quicker and closer even than that. For ents are more like elves, less interested in themselves than men are, better at getting inside. And ents are more like men, more changeable than elves are, quicker at catching the outside. Only they do both things better than either. They are steadier and keep at it. At it. Elves began it, of course, waking trees up and teaching them to talk. They always wished to talk to everything. But then the darkness came and they passed away over the sea or fled into far valleys and hid themselves. The Ents have gone on tree-herding. Some of my trees can walk. Many can talk to me. But it was not so, of course, in the beginning. We were like your Tom Bombadil when we were young. The first woods were more like the woods of Lorien. Um, notice the distinction here. This is a crucial distinction and fascinating because it's going to go away, right? This distinction, that is, is going to go away. Or rather, go away as a distinction between Tom Bombadil and the Ents. Notice the distinction that he is making. How does Tom Bombadil differ from the Ents themselves, according to Treebeard, right? It's, the, it's all the difference between getting to know sheep, hanging out with sheep, Right, even studying sheep, is the difference between that and being a shepherd. Right? It's the difference between uh walking in the fields and keeping a garden. The ents are gardeners, the ents are shepherds, they're tree herds, right? Tom Bombadil is just an observer. Uh he laughs and does not interfere. Right? Um and I say this is a fascinating distinction because, of course, you remember where this distinction is going to stick. This, in the end, is going to be the distinction between Ents and Entwives, right? The Entwives are going to be the ones who are the gardeners, right? Whereas the Ents are the ones who walk in the fields. Um, And in fact, in his letters... When Tolkien refers to, when he tries to explain the difference between ants and ant wives uh, and their points of view, he uses Tom Bombadil as an illustration, as another example of the entish perspective, right? Uh, so it's fascinating that this initially seems to emerge, uh, and I, I, I love Christopher Tolkien's suggestion here uh, that, um, uh, that 
this moment, right, this passage where Treebeard is talking about Tom Bombadil is the moment where this distinction really begins to emerge in Tolkien's mind, and he ends up shifting it, right? He ends up placing this distinction not between Tom Bombadil and Ents, but between Ents and Ent wives, right? Um, and uh, that's... Um, that's really kind of fascinating, right? So, Brian, in this version, yes, the Ents are trying for mastery over the trees, right? There's a sense in which the trees don't belong to themselves, right? Um, or if they do, uh, Treebeard is a more active master, right, than Tom Bombadil is. Um, yeah, yeah. Josiah, exactly, Josiah says, so the Entwives weren't so different from Ents at first, it would seem so, right? Um, uh, exactly, yeah. Nancy says, "What? Uh, it's weirder, right? Exactly. Tom is an ant, and the ants are ant wives. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, kind of, that's kind of it. Or rather, I think, as Josiah was saying, the gap, the, I, the concept of a gap between the perspective of ants and ant wives doesn't seem to be there from the beginning, right? Um, that seems to be something when he begins talking about the story of the Antonin wives. That seems to develop and, of course, manifest itself much more clearly uh, in the song, uh, the Elvish song that Treebeard uh, quotes and sings from. Um, here's a bit I want to I want to pause for a second because there's something I want to understand better. This whole passage about Tom Bombadil, right? Not in the original text, but then, and I'm sure, you know, with, for most of you, it's the same kind of thing, right? You're reading a paragraph like this, which is alien to the published text, and then you come to a place which is like the the text, and it's like, okay, all, all of a sudden, it, it starts, you know, you recognize it, right? It starts jumping out at you. Um, sheep get like shepherd and shepherd like sheep is that moment for me in this paragraph, right? All of a sudden, okay, now I know where I am. Right, sheep get like shepherd, and shepherd like sheep. Sheep, it is said, very slowly, but it is quicker and closer with ensign trees. My question is, okay, how do we now, notice? He was just talking about sheep, so the sheep and shepherds thing is a transition, like it's a very direct transition from what he was saying, contrasting his perspective to, from Tom uh, to Tom Bombadil's perspective, and then he transitions into the sheep and shepherds thing. Uh, what is the sort of transition? I'm trying to understand the transition of thought. So he's saying, okay, I'm giving illustrations for how my point of view differs from Tom Bombadil's, right? He understands trees, right? It's not that Tom Bombadil's wrong. He's just different, right? And so he's trying to explain what is the difference. The difference is I am a shepherd and he is like a, sh- a friend of sheep, right? Um, he knows sheep. Um, he knows sheep, but he, um, uh, but I'm a shepherd. And then he transitions from that to sheep get like shepherd and shepherd like sheep. It is said very slowly. Is this just Treebeard rambling? I mean, is that just Treebeard going off on a tangent? Is there a... The only way I can make sense of that as a sort of a logical progression is that this is... So Treebeard has just said, and being a shepherd, right? So Tom Bombadil is like the one who studies sheep. 
I am a shepherd. And then he wants to go on and say, uh, what does that mean? Right? What does it mean to be a shepherd? Um, you might understand what it means for a human or a hobbit to be a shepherd, right? What does it mean for an ant to be a tree herd, right? Um, sheep get like shepherd and shepherd like sheep, it is said very slowly, but it is quicker and closer with trees and ants. So, it does seem, I think, to circle back around the Tom Bombadil thing. Um, yeah, it's not super queer, um, but I think I can see it now. Okay, so he's saying, on the one, at first when he's contrasting his point of view with Tom Bombadil's point of view, he seems to be suggesting Tom Bombadil gets close to the sheep, right? He's like down on all fours, hanging out with the sheep, um, uh, passing the time of day to a sheep on the hillside, sitting down and studying t- sheep till you know what they feel about grass, right? So Tom Bombadil is getting close to the sheep, whereas the shepherd knows sheep, but remains aloof from sheep, right? He doesn't just fraternize with sheep. He is the boss of sheep for their own good, right? So, first, he suggests my own position as shepherd in relationship to the trees is that I hold myself aloof. Tom Bombadil doesn't hold himself. He goes among the trees, and he knows them. He understands them right enough. Um, but, but, you know, he just laughs and hangs out with them and doesn't interfere. I am an ant. I am a herdsman. I am a shepherd. So I have to sort of distance myself and kind of maintain authority, and I exercise that authority over them um, uh, to... For their own good, right? Um, so what? So what does that mean? Well, what does it mean to be a shepherd from his point of view, right? What does it mean to be a herdsman of trees? Well, for an ant to be a herdsman of trees, actually means coming to be like them. Not so. Tom Bombadil will come to understand trees and sheep and other things over time, right? But he doesn't change them. The Ents come to change the trees over time. That's what being a shepherd means to them. Sheep get like shepherd and shepherd like sheep, right? Um, They themselves, therefore, the Ents, are also changing uh, in the course of this process. Um, Is this also then an explanation of what happened to the bad trees? Did they convert them, in a sense, right? Did he... uh, uh, You know, they made those sheep more like the shepherds? over time, right? So they, they sort of grew together, the bad trees, and because uh, remember, this is still that same context, right? It's in the context of him talking about how there weren't any bad trees anymore down in Fangorn. Uh, there are up in the old forest, right? That's a bad place. Um, and then Pippin's like, hey, but what about Tom Bombadil, right? And then he's explaining, no, this is, so it's still the same conversation about changing the bad trees, um, yes, Kate, good. And then the next step is he relates that, the way in which the trees who are being herded and the ants who are the herd, herdsmen, right? And it's those bad trees that need the most herding, right? They're the ones who are, who are the, who are the most unruly and difficult, right? Then he connects that, Kate, the next step in the argument is the elves, right? Um, the elves who began it. And that, um, that by itself is a really interesting... And, of course, that, that's just as interesting in the published text, right? Elves began it, of course. Well, began what, exactly? Right? 
Um, what does it refer to in that sentence? Elves began it, right? Well, they began talking to trees, but he wasn't talking about talking to trees, right? That can't be the antecedent of it in that sentence. What he's talking about, the it that he's referring to, that the elves seem to have begun, is the changing, right? Uh waking trees up and teaching them to talk. So the elves changed the trees to be more like them, right? By teaching them to talk. So the elves began this process of this herd, herding process, right? This, this, uh, uh, the, this whole sheep-shepherd relationship, right? So that's how the ants were initially woken up, and then the ants, in turn, are doing the same thing, in a sense, with the other trees that the ants did with them, is how it began. Yeah, exactly, Kimber. They began the interference. Exactly. That's an interesting way to think about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, Thomas, this idea of the shepherd becoming like the sheep is still extant in the text when Tolkien was started writing about the ant wives. Yeah, both it's still in the published text. That line, sheep get like shepherd and shepherd like I mean, from halfway down this paragraph, so he cuts out the top part. He cuts out the Tom Bombadil stuff, right? But from sheep get like shepherd and shepherd like sheep, all of the rest of this, all of the rest of that paragraph, the whole second half of that paragraph, is in it's not quite word for word. Uh, there are some revisions to the phrasing, but it's it's that all that's there. Um all that's still in the published text. So yeah. Yeah. Um, Josiah, it sounds like Josiah says, did elves wake the Ents or did they wake up trees and make them into Ents? Um, he says they woke trees up and taught them to talk. Um, so what does that mean? That doesn't necessarily mean that that's where Ents came from. It just suggests that they started the herding process. So, did they wake trees up and may, and thereby kind of transform them into ants, or were they the first ones to wake up other trees, and then the ants followed their example in herding and waking up other trees? See, I, see what I mean? Um, he doesn't say that. Ents come from elves waking up trees, that that's the origin of Ents. Um, he just says that they began it, that is, that they began the changeability thing, they began the shepherd and sheep thing, they began the interfering with trees, right, and changing them to become more like themselves. Um, so yeah, Josiah, it's not clear whether the Ents already existed. We've not, we don't really... Uh, we don't really get that very clearly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony, I also, uh, I, I, I see what you're saying, and, and I've also often usually thought of that passage that same way, that Ents didn't, didn't talk until the elves taught them. Um, but in this context, right, in this paragraph, that's totally not what elves began, right? The it that they began is clearly the transformation, the changing, the sheep getting more like shepherds, right? Um, that's that's plainly the context of that line in this. That's why I'm so interested in sort of the logical flow 
of this paragraph, right? How does he get from Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadil, down to um, elves began it, waking trees up and teaching them to talk, right? How, how does he get from one to the other? Um, and I, I think it's, I think it's about that interference. It's clearly the it that elves began is clearly this interfering, this uh, catching the outside, this changeability thing. Okay. All right, let's keep going. I have been thinking I should have to do... I should, I, I've been thinking I should have to do something, but I see it will be better sooner than later. Men are better than orcs, especially if the Dark Lord doesn't get at them. But the Rohiroth and the folk of Ondor, if Saruman attacks at the back, will soon be in a lonely something or other. We shall have hordes from the east and something swarm of orcs all over us. I shall be eaten up and there will be nowhere to go. The flood will rise into the pines in the mountains. I don't think the elves would find room for me in a ship. I could not go over sea. I should wither, I should wither away from my own soil. If you'll come with me, we'll go to Isengard. You'll be helping your own friends. Um, okay. Um, here's Treebeard thinking, what are we going to do, right? What's Treebeard going to do? This is Treebeard trying to answer the question that Tolkien was asking in his outline there. Here's thinking it through. Well, notice we, we haven't been talking about sides, but Treebeard, this is Treebeard trying to decide which side he's going to, he's going to join. Um, uh, so, um, um, yeah, orcs, men are better than orcs, right? So, you know, all things considered, if it's orcs versus humans, I should probably side with the humans against the orcs, right? Uh, the orcs are, or humans are better, especially if the Dark Lord doesn't get at them, right? Uh, and he's realizing, okay, the strategic situation for Gondor and Rohan, or Ondor, excuse me, and Rohan still looks pretty bad. Um, so if, uh, if Saruman attacks them from the back, it's going to be, it's, you know, the, so yeah, the, the flood, the flood, I, I do take the flood to be metaphorical here, Tony, as well, definitely. Um, and he's wondering, what can I do? If this happens he's going to be destroyed unless he leaves, right? But he's like that. I don't think the elves would find room for me in a ship. Um, which is a lovely image, right? Treebeard on boat. Would he like, what would he volunteer to be the mast or something? Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I like Yana's suggestion. Yana's thinking that Treebeard is not thinking uh, creatively enough here. He says I should wither away from my own soil. So Yana says, "Well, why doesn't he? Uh, why doesn't he uh, just put some of the soil of his native land into like I don't know, like thirty wooden boxes and bring them on board the ship so that that way he'd be fine as long as he had the boxes right of the dirt uh, from his native land." Right? Come on. Vampires do it. Why shouldn't Ents do it? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Yana, that's a great, that's a great suggestion there. Um, uh, he would wither away from his own soil, though. Treebeard 
as being really fixed in Middle Earth. He can't he can't leave. Going away is not really an option. Um, yeah, and John, I think that's a great point. John says uh, he, he likes sort of the poetry of this that it it emphasizes both the the mortality of the natural world uh, and you know, also sort of reminding us of the otherness of the elves, right? It's an option for the elves to just depart over the sea, right? But um, uh, the natural world as a whole is not does not share the fate of the elves in that way. It's not like the elves. Uh, he can't just leave. Uh, now, in the song, in, in the, 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 the drafting of the song, this is the prose version that he gives at the end here of the final stanza, the original draft of the final stanza of the Entenent Wife song. I'll come back to thee and look for thee again. I'll come to thee and comfort thee and find thee in the rain. We'll walk the land together and gather seed and set and journey to an island where both can live again. Um, this shows oh, you can see he's not he's not worked out the the verse and you know the line structure yet, um, but the the last verse he was toying with a much more explicit reunion. Just to refresh your memories in the published text, that last verse. Together we shall take the road that leads into the west, and far away shall find a land where both our hearts may rest. Is the is the final version. Uh, uh, in the in the published text, um, and uh, so the much more specific reference to journeying to an island where both can live again uh, is interesting, right? Uh, is there a separate kind of entish paradise that they go to? This seems to be the implication here in this draft. And I, like, is this elven home? It's possible, of course, that it's, an, that that's the island in question. It might be a separate island entirely, right? Some other, against, as I say, specifically uh, Entish paradise. Tolkien alludes to this possibility explicitly in one of his letters. One of the possibilities that the, uh, uh, the Ents and Ent wives could meet again at, in this, uh, paradise out beyond the sea. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I love the gathering seed, though. That's a touch that's not anywhere in the, in the final version. Um, and it's more, I love sort of the future orientation of it, right? That, that, that promise of, we're going to not only go and retire and live this kind of, you know, sort of afterlife together, we're bringing seed, right, for a new beginning. Uh, and that's really, uh, that's really fun. Yeah, Josiah, how can they get to an island if they can't travel from their soil and what, what ship will bear them across the sea, right? Uh, um This seems to be an exception, right? Uh, well, first of all, the thing to remember, and this is uh, this is sort of the heart. Some of you may know this is the first thing I ever published um, about Tolkien was my article on the Song of the Ants and the Ant Wives in the Two Towers. Um, it was uh, the scholarly article that I wrote on a dare in two weeks uh, when my wife dared me to write a Tolkien article uh, before spring semester started one year, um, and. Uh, 
the the number one like the, the 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 first point that I made in that article because it's something that a lot of people it's just really easy to overlook. A lot of people when they talk about it forget that it's not it does not represent the Entish point of view, right? People talk about that song like as if this were the, the you know this this is the perspective of the ants and the perspective of the ant wives. It is neither the perspective of the ants nor the perspective of the ant wives. It is the perspective of the elves, right? It's an elvish song. Um, and Treebeard denies it, right? You know, he says it doesn't do justice to the Entish position, right? Um, and uh, and he he critiques it, right? Lighthearted, quick-worded, and soon over, right? So it's it, you know, it, he he doesn't endorse the song. He just he likes the song, right? And he repeats it for them, but it's an Elvish song, not uh, not an Entish song. Right, it would be far too long uh, in Entish, of course, as he says, uh, with typical sort of uh, humorous, the kind of humorous self-deprecation that Treebeard so often uses. Um, but uh, but anyway, so this business about at the end of the song about the island and that you know they're finding a land where both their hearts may rest. That is not something that he himself knows or believes. It's not a prophecy. This is just uh, well. It's something that's that the elves have sung, right? That this may happen, and he wonders if that song will come true or not. But he doesn't really know, right? And it's as I say, it's this is uh, one of those elvish things. Um, yeah, Stephen, that's a really great question. Stephen is wondering. Uh, Stephen Cover says, uh, uh, "Do we have any sense of what Entish poetry would be like? Um, what would be the?" you know, the structure, the sort of the techniques of Entish poetry. It could be... Um, it could be... Uh, It could be syllabic, but it would have to be... I mean, it would be very long, right? I would imagine really long lines, or it could be alliterative. Um, My suspicion is that, given the slow unfolding of their language, um, it would be very difficult for us to perceive it. Right, because the uh, I sus- I have to think that given the nature of the language, um, their poetic technique would probably be different from anything that we're familiar with, or it might be like it, but it would be on a different scale. Right? Um, think about the way that alliterative verse has those like four beats in it. Right, the two half lines with the two beats per half line, uh, and with the alliteration aligning with the. The, those four main stresses uh, in the uh, in you know in, in different patterns right in the in those four main stresses, I could imagine an entish line doing a similar thing except the the beats right um, would be uh, um, stretched out over time and probably working very differently right not just in the pronunciation of a single syllable. Uh, but I could imagine it having shape uh, in in some ways. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kimber, I don't know. That's a great question. Kimber's asking, um, we'll walk the land together and gather seed and set and journey to an island where both can live again. I don't know what set means. Yeah. Yeah, Kimber was just asking that. I have no idea. I know I gather seed. Okay, just gather seed and set. Is that like a gardening term? I don't know. I'm not a gardener myself. Uh, that might make sense to a 20th century English gardener, but doesn't make sense to me. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't get that either. Um, is it, uh, a group or collection of seeds? Okay. Possibly, possibly. Um, no, it seems, okay. So get set, would seem to, it looks like it's 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 an object of gather, like they're going to gather they're going to gather seed and they're also going to gather set. Um, I don't think that set is a verb. There, I think it's a noun. That seems. Oh, onions come in sets, do they? Really, the seeds? Do the seeds come in sets, or the onions themselves come in come in sets? Oh, wait, Joyce says it's a small plant, like a seedling, ready to plant. As bulbs. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, okay, so they'll gather seed and... Se- so they'll bring some seeds and they'll bring some seedlings. That makes sense. I mean, that, 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 makes, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so bulbs come in sets in that same way as in you. Okay, all right. Good. See, this is good. My mom would know this. I don't. I don't know this. My mom's a big gardener. I. 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 I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't inherit that. Um, so okay. All right. Good. Well, that 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 makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Let's move to Gandalf now, away from Treebeard. Um, in this set of notes, we finally get the transition. Right, we've been waiting for it to happen. It has now officially happened, or at least begun to happen. Uh, he floats the idea, sketches it in a couple different places. Oops, sorry. Sketches it in a couple different places. Um, wizards equals angels, right? Um, this would seem to represent, and Christopher is is is, is very good on this point to suggest two things about wizards, right? By equating them with angels, he's not only saying, okay, they're not just guys. We've seen this all the way through. So far, wizards have just been people who are professional. Like, wizard has been a profession, not a, not a, 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 a state of being, right? Now, they are on a different... Uh, uh, level in the great chain of being, right? So the wizards are going to be, they're going to be of, of the angelic order, so they're going to be Ainur, essentially, right? That's a new thing. But also, and again, as I say, Christopher is very good on this, 
uh, the na- the word angel from from Latin it, it means messenger. Like that's what an angel. Like when an angel descends, that's why angels descend. Angels descend to tell folks things, right? Whether it's whether it's the angel who delivers the message to Joshua, telling him to go around to march around Jericho and yell, or whether it's the heavenly the choir of heavenly hosts to say you know. Um, uh, d- announcing, you know, to the shepherds, right, uh, uh, the, the tidings of great joy on Christmas. Um, uh, the angels deliver messages, or like, hey, you're going to conceive a, a child, right? Uh, like the, you know, the uh, the message uh, delivered by Gabriel to Mary. Um, this is what angels do. Angels have the job. And this is, by the way, this is one of the reasons why Tolkien always hedged when people said, so the Valar are angels? And he's like, eh, not exactly, right? Similar to angels, yes, as far as their order in the great chain of being, but they're not professionally angels, right? Um, the Valar aren't just, they're not messengers sent from Iluvatar to people, right? So clearly, um, so he, and that's how, you know, when, when Tolkien thinks of angels, this is how he, uh, uh, how he envisions what he envisions the word angel meaning. So that's why he keeps hedging and saying, no, the vow aren't, aren't angels. Exactly. The Astari are, though. The wizards are angels in both senses, both in the sense that they are, uh, you know, not mortals and they're not incarnate. They're, they're spiritual beings, but also that they were messengers, that they have been sent uh, to the now of Middle-earth uh, in order to... Uh, uh, to help them. Exactly, Tony. That's why he uses the term powers, with a capital P, um, to describe the Valar instead of a word like angels, which would have been easier in some sense, right? In some senses. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Brian, you're right, angel conveys, uh, in, in modern culture, it, it is associated with, like, uh, guardian angel, right? Somebody protecting or looking out for the interests of people. Um, and even that that idea of like a personal guardian angel, right, is is obviously very different from the concept of the uh, of the Valar. Um, but um, okay, so this is where the, now. So keep in mind a couple important things here. What I'm really fascinated by is, in a sense, the moment at which this concept. Uh, this sort of ontological promotion that wizards are getting, right? Uh, and its relationship with the resurrection of Gandalf. On the one hand, Gandalf's return predates it, right? Um, so Gandalf was coming back anyway uh, before they even... before While the wizards were still just guys, right? Gandalf was coming back. Um but now as he's thinking through what does it mean for Gandalf to come back and what exactly is he coming back from and how did he get out of Moria, right? And what happened with the Balrog anyway, as he's working through those things in more detail, now that we're actually getting to the point of writing the part of the story where, uh, where Gandalf actually returns and explains stuff, that's the moment when this whole Wizards as Angels uh, stuff um, yeah, so Rachel, great question. Rachel says, how do the Unfinished Tales things fit into these drafts? Um, they are written almost everything. Mm, no. Everything. 
I believe everything without exception that is written in un, that is published in unfinished tales is written after the Lord of the Rings, most of it after the publication of the Lord of the Rings. I think some of the things in Unfinished Tales were things that he began after he finished writing the Lord of the Rings, but before it was published. But everything in Unfinished Tales post-dates this drafting period. Uh, Correct me if I'm misremembering something, but I'm pretty sure that all of that stuff is post-publication. And yes, Kate, Balrogs were already... Evil Maiar, yes, they were the they they have been the the fallen Maiar servants of Melkor from the from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, remember, Gothmog was originally Melkor's son, actually. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so Gandalf to reappear again. How did he escape? This might never be fully explained, right? I'm going to dodge that one, I, but you know, rather, but I don't think this is just Tolkien copping out. I think that this is one of these moments, where, and there are many moments, that he's like, I don't want to explain everything. Maybe, maybe we just leave that mysterious. He passed through fire and became the White Wizard. Notice the difference here. The last time he was talking about Gandalf's return, he was still becoming a White Wizard. Now he's becoming the underlined White Wizard. Um, the shift from being Gandalf the Grey to becoming a white wizard before seemed to be a shift in, like, vocation, right? Now his job is different. Because remember, him becoming a white wizard in the previous, the previous times we saw that, that was, um, associated with him becoming the captain of the armies of the good guys, right? Essentially. The champion, of good against Sauron. That seems to be kind of what being a white wizard is about. Remember, that was Saruman's specialty, too, uh, before he messed it up. Um, but So now it's not just about, like, now he's going to change his career path and become a white wizard, right? No, no, no. Now he's the white wizard. White wizard is a, is a, a unique title. Um, and, Rachel, I do believe when Christopher Tolkien italicizes stuff like this, which is in the middle of his, uh, uh, of Tolkien's notes, I believe that that means that he underlined those words, uh, in the manuscript. Um, that he's, Christopher's re- representing Tolkien's own emphasis, uh, in his writing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, he passed through fire and became the white wizard I forgot much that I knew and learned again much that I had forgotten he has thus acquired something of the awe and terrible power of the ring wraiths only on the good side evil things fly from him if he is revealed when he shines but he does not as a rule reveal himself he has acquired something of the awe and terrible power of the Ringwraiths. Remember that business about seeing Glorfindel as he is on the other side, right? And uh, uh, Frodo being half in the Wraith world already when he's suffering from his wound. All that stuff was there, right, already this last time through. So this concept of being on the other side like that... Um, The parallel um, 
the parallel between Gandalf and the Ringwraiths here, right? He has acquired something of the awe and terrible power of the Ringwraiths. Suggests that although Wizards Equals Angels is written, I think, twice on this sheet of paper, um, I am not 100% sure that this paragraph represents that concept fully. I'm wondering if... It sounds to me, this is speculation on my part, but it sounds to me like the paragraph here is step one of the thinking, and then the wizards equals angels thing is step two. Right? Let me, let me explain a little bit more what I mean. So, the previous step was he becomes a white wizard, right? Vocational change, right? Change in vocational uh, trajectory. The next step is, no, 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 no. He didn't just become a white wizard. He became the white wizard. And in fact, he's been changed by this process. So by, like, dying and coming back from the dead, or by passing through fire the way that he does, he is altered, and he has now crossed over, right? He now has this power like, from that other place, from that other wraith world, right? So he is like a ringwraith who exists on the other side, but he is a good wraith, right? He's like a good wraith. Um, when he reveals himself, uh, then he, you know, when he shines, when he uncloaks himself, uh, then he has the same kind of power, just like the ringwraiths uh, uh, afflict people with with awe and, and 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 terror because they're not wholly of our world, right? So Gandalf has now achieved uh, a, a same the same kind of power. The, again, the parallel between Gandalf and the Ringwraiths makes it sound like he's still a human to start with. He's not an angel yet, right? So we move from he was a guy, and he's still a guy with a different job, to he was a guy... Now he's a very special guy, right, who has been substantially spiritually transformed by his experience. And so now he's not just a guy anymore. He's still a guy, but he's not just a guy. He now also has this terrible power when he chooses to reveal himself, right? And so that evil things fly from him if he is revealed. And then the next step up from that is, actually, no, he's not a guy at all. He's an angel to begin with, right? Um... That's how I understand the progression of Tolkien's thought here. Um, yeah. Now, Kate, that's a really great point. Kate Neville's pointing out, uh, it is really interesting. She says, I always found it odd that Gandalf was always paralleled to the Nazgul in the text, in the published text, rather than to Sauron. Um, yes, you're right that if you think about it from that level, right, uh, Gandalf as a Maya... His opposite number is Sauron, who's also, who's a fallen Maya, right? So you, you'd think it would be Gandalf versus Sauron, but you're right, Kate, that in the text, the parallel is between Gandalf and the Witch King, right? It's, uh, it's the White Rider versus the Black Rider. You're right. Um, and of course, Kate, you think about, the, this has been going on for a while. Remember, he was the Wizard King. Um, so you've got, like, the Black Rider, who is the leader of the Black Riders, who is a wizard, a bad wizard, right? Uh, a, a, a wizard wraith. And you've got Gandalf, 
the good wizard, right? So the two of them have been kind of the parallels to each other, and then so it makes sense that he's thinking of it in those same terms. Um, so, but you're right, kid, all the way down to the gates of Minas Tirith, right? Where it's like Gandalf versus the Witch King is the heavyweight bout we've all been waiting for, right? When the Witch King rides in through the main gate. Um, but of course it ends anticlimactically, right? Um, which is better than how it ended in the movie, which is one of the only, one of the things that I still find it really hard to forgive Peter Jackson for in the Lord of the Rings films. Um, uh, but it's okay. I just prefer not to think about that scene at all. Um, I'm of course referring to the scene where the Witch King breaks Gandalf's staff, which is just like so wrong in every possible way. I can't even, uh, I, I, I just can't even, uh, but anyhow, um, Again, people can make changes and adaptations and stuff, but they can also make adapta- they can make changes that just don't make a lick of sense from any point of view, and that's certainly top of uh, top of my list. Well, see, Yana, it is only in the extended edition, but I've it's been. I think I've only seen the theatrical versions once since the theater. I mean, I, I've watched nothing but the extended edition forever. But anyway, whatever. Okay. He should have a trial of strength with Saruman. Yeah, so clearly, the old white wizard, the new white wizard, right, that totally needs to happen. Could the Balrog of the bridge be, in fact, Saruman? Oh, we've already gone there, right? He's already, he's already, he's coming back to this idea. Um, or better, as in older sketch, Saruman is very affable? Okay, so, two possibilities for confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman. One is that Saruman is the Balrog, or the Balrog actually is Saruman. Now, I don't understand um, exactly what he's implying here. Is he is he suggesting that what they take for a Balrog is actually Saruman? So this is Saruman cosplaying as a Balrog who deceives them at first, and they're like, oh, it's not a Balrog, it's actually, it's a, it's Saruman, right? I, I, that's, um, okay. Or is it right exactly Nancy's Scooby-Doo style, right? You think it's the Balrog, like, no, it's Saruman, right? Actually, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, I, I, I like that idea, Nancy. Um, or, more disturbingly, is, Saur, is Sauron actu- Saruman actually a Balrog, right? Hi, you thought I was a white wizard and the leader of the White Council, but I've been a Balrog all along! Ah, yeah. Um, I don't really know. <laughs> I'm not sure what he's suggesting. Or he could just be suggesting a switch, right? Oh, cancel the Balrog. Let's replace, you know, the, the, the part of, uh, of the Balrog on the Bridge of Khazad Doom is now going to be played by his understudy, Gandalf. R- or, Saruman, rather. Sorry. Um, I, you know, um, Yeah, exactly. James Stevens was just saying that. He could just be replacing the Balrog. Uh, with, it's the phrasing, James. Could the Balrog of the bridge be, in fact, Saruman? S- which suggests more than just a replacement. More than just like, hey, cancel Balrog. Insert Saruman instead. Be, in fact, Saruman. It's the in fact that gets me. 
right? And makes me wonder what on earth is going on here. Um, Tony says, like, when, when Maleficent becomes the dragon. Or would it be the other way around? Would it be like the dragon becoming Maleficent? I don't even know. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. But then, but so that, that's one possibility. One possibility is some kind of juxtaposition between Balrog and Saruman on the on Khazad. So that the Bridge of Khazad Doom will become the confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman. That was the idea that he already floated before. Or possibly option two might be better, which is affable Saruman, right? And older sketch, he's already, he's already, you know, remember this was in the one chapter, one chapter, one chapter outline. Um, and it was placed at the end. Uh, it was in the reconciliations of things at the end um, that uh, Saruman is like, okay, Gandalf, how shall we divide our duties, right? And Gandalf is like, I don't think so, you're fired. Um, so he thinks that maybe that confrontation where uh, Saruman tries to kind of play it cool and Gandalf has nothing to do, is having nothing to do with it, um, he thinks may- maybe that would be better. <laughs> You guys are great. Josiah says, maybe Saruman killed the Balrog and took his clothes. What do you have to say to that? (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, And Brian suggests that uh, maybe it would have been even better if Saruman had been an affable Balrog. Uh, Yeah, yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, let's keep going. All right. Uh, let's look at Gandalf's, uh, so w- w- we see Gandalf kind of transforming as we go through the, uh, the White Rider chapter here. Uh, he talks about that how it's it is at the turn of the tide. The great storm is coming, but the tide has turned even at this moment. Much more specific. You may remember uh, that's almost exactly what Gandalf says in the published text. He says uh, uh, this: uh, the storm is coming, but the tide has turned. Right. So he he just uses insists on the present perfect tense. Right. The tide has turned. It is an action that is complete in the present. But he doesn't, he's not quite this specific. The tide has turned even at this moment. So Gandalf here in this first draft is saying our meeting, right? Me meeting with you and Legolas, you know, with Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. The four of us coming together, this is the moment that turns the tide, right? Which is kind of cool, but different than what we get in the published text. I have passed through fire and ruin, and I have been badly burned, or well burned, But come, tell me now of yourselves. I have seen much in deep places and in high since we parted. I have forgotten much that I knew and learned again much that I had forgotten. Some things I can see far off and some close at hand, but not all can I see. Changed at once to, many things I can see far off, but many that are close at hand I cannot see. What do you wish to know, said Aragorn? All that has happened would be a long tale. Would you not tell us? Would you not first tell us tidings of Merry and Pippin? Did you find them, and are they safe? No, I did not find them," said Gandalf. "I was busy with perilous matters and did not know of their captivity until the Eagle told me." 
Okay. So this first reference to his own transformation, right? I have passed through fire and ruin and I have been badly burned or will burn. Do you remember that that piece of dialogue came through the very first time Tolkien outlined this, right? The business about being well burned. Um, uh, So that kind of, I won't say flippant, but um, uh, uh, sort of lighthearted tone um, that Gandalf uses to describe it is still still there, right? Um, and he's being very unclear about the extent of his own transformation. He's passed through fire and ruin. That could just mean, I've been through a lot, man. I've been through some tough times. Um, did he die? Gandalf? Right? Did he die and return from the dead? I don't really... I don't really know. Um, Xenia says, uh, well-burned makes him sound like a blackened catfish or something. Yeah, exactly. That's... that's, It it, it is kind of a joke at his expense, right? I've been badly burned. Or well-burned, right? Um, Yeah, exactly. He's been... uh, He was done extra crispy, Brandon. Exactly. Um... Um, now you're right, James, well burned could also imply that it was, it was painful and unpleasant, but in the end, a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, uh, Henry, uh, up in the Twitch chat, I agree with you, but that's, you're thinking of the published text. I'm focusing on what Gandalf says here in this first, cause this is, this is the first draft, right? Um, and we don't get that yet. Watch what happens. Watch what happens next. Christopher says, It is not clear at this stage what had happened to Gandalf, and it seems that my father did not for the moment intend to make it so. That is, he didn't intend to make it clear. It is, supposed, uh, it is to be supposed that he made his way south along the mountains, and so came to Methedros, where he sat beneath the snows and strove with the dark tower, while Frodo wore the ring on Ammon Hen. A single, isolated, and interrupted sentence says, Gwaiwar found me walking in the woods. Of him I... Which surely means that Gandalf came from Methedris into Fangorn, and that Gwaiwar, that is, the wind, the Windlord, the Eagle, the Lord, the Lord of the Eagles, his name is almost, but not quite yet, changed to Gwaihir. Uh, Gwaiwar having found him, he sent the Eagle away east to watch the river and gather tidings. This may suggest that the story of his being born by the Eagle to Lothlorien had not yet arisen. Right? Exactly. So, so yeah, so he's not... Um, I, I, I certainly agree. I would... Be I, I would I would uh, agree with that even more rationally than Christopher is sort of suggesting it very gently. It seems to me fairly clear based on the evidence that he puts forward here that the 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 going to Lothlorien. In fact, not only um, not only that, but it seems to make a little bit more sense of Treebeard's you know the implication that Treebeard saw Gandalf before. Right? How? Why did he see Gandalf? Why is Gandalf wandering around Fangorn? Right. Well, originally he's wandering around Fangorn because he got there on foot. Um, I think the implication here is that Gandalf didn't die. Gandalf fell into the Gulf, right? Fought the Balrog, over, overthrew it, um, maybe ripped off its mask and found it was really Saruman, maybe not. And then he came south through the mountains, right? 
um, and uh, came to Methedras and sat beneath the snows and strove with the dark tower. Um, so he comes. So Methedras is the southernmost point of the Misty Mountains, right? So he comes south from Moria, comes out at Methedras, and then walks through Thangorn, and that's where he catches up with the eagle, right? Uh, because we have had no reference to the Battle of the Peak, to them going up to the top of the... Uh, and, and having their final fight, the final fight between Gandalf and the Balrog, up at the top of, uh, of the mountain. That's not been, that's not been, uh, uh, been referred to yet. Um, Stephen, yeah, so he fell into the bottomless pit, but got better. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, so, is he an angel yet? Do wizards equal angels yet? Are we st- still in that progression? I'm not sure. Like, it's really unclear because we don't yet, we don't have any of these details of what happened with Gandalf yet. Um, so, uh, I, I, I'm trying to be hesitant, um, as, a, as, as I, as I, as I normally am, uh, I, do, I don't want to leap to conclusions, right? Or to just read backwards into these old drafts, what we know to be true in the published text, because he's not always there yet, Right. Um, uh, so, yeah, so no, I, there's, there's no reference to him leaving time in space and uh, being sent back. That doesn't seem to be part of this initial story. He's just been wondering since then. Did he die or did he not die? I don't know. But no trip to Lothlorien, no going and coming back yet, it seems, right? Um... Now here's him sketching out Gandalf's speech. Eagle sights orcs and hobbits, Saruman about in the woods. Orc battle. Treebeard. They are safe, but something is going on. Revolt of trees? But we are called south. War is beginning. They must wait in hope and patience to find Merry and Pippin. But their friendship and devotion in following them was rewarded. The company had done nobly, and Gandalf was pleased with them. They ask what happened to him. He won't tell yet. Okay, so this is the sketch of what he's what he's going to be saying. So, uh, orc battle, tree beard. Now I, that just seems to be not a sequence of things like being connected, right? But um, but of um, chronology, right? So the orcs and the hobbits. The orcs are bearing the hobbits across the field. Saruman is in the woods, right? He's come out to meet the orcs. Then there's the orc battle. Then Merry and Pippin meet Treebeard, and they're safe. Because they met Treebeard. But something is going on. So the, the forest is stirring. Revolt of trees. Right? But we are called... So, so, but they're going to leave because the war is beginning. We're not going to go find Merry and Pippin. You have to wait in, uh, in hope and patience. But their friendship and devotion in following them was rewarded. How? Remember, because they have met with Gandalf, and when they meet with Gandalf, that is the turn of the tide. Right, the fact that Gandalf, Legolas, Gimli, and Gandalf have been reunited is the moment at which the tide of the war turns. So that is how they are rewarded for uh, their friendship and devotion. The company had done nobly, and Gandalf was pleased with them. But he won't tell them what happened to him yet. Yeah. Um... That Saruman was about in the woods 
is mentioned in the little outline just given. In the first drafting, Gandalf tells that he could not wait at home and came forth to meet his captives, but that he was too late. The battle was over, and being no woodcraftsman, he had misinterpreted what had happened. Poor Saruman, Gandalf adds. What a fall for one so wise. I fear that he started too late to make a success of wickedness. Changed to, he started in the race too late. He seems not to have the luck he needs in his new profession. He at least will never sit in the Dark Tower. Um, <laughs> uh, this is really, uh, this is kind of funny, right? I mean, it's a little bit funny that Gandalf is sort of suggesting, like, see, if Saruman had just committed treason earlier in the game, right? I mean, if he had set himself to, uh, if he hadn't procrastinated the, the converting to evil thing quite as long as he had, then, you know, maybe he could have made some progress. Um, exactly, Jennifer. you got to start young as an evil overlord if you really hope to succeed. Um, uh, but now, the fact that Gandalf may speak of this, uh, like, his, his phrasing is clearly intended to be humorous, like Gandalf is speaking lightly of these things, right? He started too late to make a success of wickedness. is clearly meant to be funny, right? Um, and same as started in the race too late by characterizing it as a race. I think he's making light of Saruman. He seems not to have the luck he needs in his new profession. Exactly, Brandon. That's a Hobbit reference. That's got to be a Hobbit reference, right? He's comparing Saruman to Bilbo. And I love that! I love that. So... Both Bilbo and Saruman start, launch themselves on a new profession late in life, right? One has the luck that he needs to succeed in his new profession of burglar. The other does not have the luck that he needs in his new profession. And that's fantastic, of course, especially remembering Gandalf's comments to Bilbo about luck, right? Um, that, uh, of course, it's not really his luck, uh, that is guiding him. Um, so, uh, th that's, that's really funny. I really kind of wish that Gandalf had still said that. Um, uh, but, uh, anyway, that's, uh, that, that parallel or sort of anti-parallel between Saruman and Bilbo, that is fun stuff right there. But, oh uh, well. Okay, now this is uh, Gandalf speaking, and this is, these passages I'm reading here now, of course, are the small selection of passages that Christopher Tolkien has given us. Most of the White Rider chapter is is very close to the final published version from the very beginning. These are the few passages that uh, that are clearly different. Ah, said Gandalf, now you are asking, who is Treebeard? He is Fangorn, that is Treebeard, Treebeard the Ent. What else should I call him? The eldest of the old, the kind of the Treebeards, the dwellers in the forest. Stone old, Tree hale, snail slow, strong as a gnawing root. I wish you had met him. Your friends were more fortunate, for they came up here, as Aragorn has already discovered. But no marks of them go down, as he may have discovered and soon would. But here, marks something marks by one of Treebeard's feet. This was a place. He often came to it when he wished to be alone and look outside the forest. He has taken the hobbits away. Um, by the way, I love that, right? When he wished to be alone and look outside the forest. Uh, so when he goes to the place where he's going to go view the outside world, he meets Merry and Pippin, right? From the outside world, who draw his attention to what's going on in the outside world, uh, which is cool. Um, but uh, uh, 
but of course, it's also ironic that he goes there to be alone, and that's of course where he meets his new guests. Um, uh, yeah, and oh, Evan, I agree with you. It is really funny, isn't it, that he's envisioning Tolkien is in, is trying to figure out how this confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman. Uh, is going to happen, right? Maybe it's going to be at the bridge. Maybe it's going to be that sort of affable Saruman conversation at Orthanc later on. But yeah, Evan, it's kind of ironic that he has both Gandalf and Saruman running around in the forest like they could have run into each other at any point, right? So uh, he seems to be as assiduous, Tolkien seems to be as assiduous about keeping them from meeting as he is uh, sort of planning their final confrontation there. Um, uh yeah, Josiah, he's not just a treebeard. He's the treebeard of the kind of the treebeards. Yes. Uh, interesting that his name, Treebeard, is being adopted as, uh, um, as, a, as the name of the kind, right? Which suggests that perhaps Ent here is, being, is not the, like the species, right? Treebeards. The treebeards are the species, right? The Ent. He is Treebeard the Ent. Which treebeard is he? Treebeard the Ent, right? So he's he's so that's his title. He's you know a giant. He's he he is a giant among the treebeards. I don't know that he's physically bigger or something, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, the kind of the treebeards. He is the prototypical, um, the 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 prototypical treebeard, <laughs> right? Um. Okay. Um, let's keep going. I'm on a roll now. So now, question. Okay, so their meeting is the turn of the tide. Their friendship and devotion has been rewarded. More about that, Gandalf. Also, I say to you that your coming to Minas Tirith will not be very different from what would have been had you come there alone, reporting that Boromir, son, son of the Lord Denethor, had fallen while you lived. Um, in the next draft he tells Aragorn that he must go not to Windsel, changed to Edoras the light of Bronding must now be uncovered there is battle in Rohan and they are hard put to it in the west even as the great flood of war comes up from the east in the fair copy this becomes there is war in Rohan and it goes ill for the horsemasters thus again there is no suggestion of worm tongue um Tim, I was thinking the same thing. Tim is thinking like that tree beards sound so similar to the long beards. Yes, doesn't it sound like the clan of dwarves? I was thinking the same thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, it is that that is a really interesting overlapping there. Okay, so um, I I am very interested in the implication that. Gandalf makes that had Aragorn returned to Minas Tirith and reported the death of Boromir, his son, that things might have gotten interesting, right? Um, I come back to that temptation, right? Perhaps this is a sense in which uh, perhaps this is the sense in which the desire to go straight down to Minas Tirith was a temptation. Not that it is a desire which is a wicked desire that must be resisted, but that it was 
a desire that was leading him on a path that would have been a, a path to destruction, right? Had he gone to Minas Tirith um, and been the one to report toward Denethor that his son Boromir had fallen, things might not have gone well. Right, the way that he, the way and the time in which he is going to arrive at Minas Tirith now, is going to create a very different and a very much more positive situation. Um, Aragorn might have met with suspicion at the very least, had he been the one to report the death of Boromir to the Lord Denethor. Um, I. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Josiah, yes, uh, Boromir was apparently alive in the passage about the temptation. Yes. Yes, possibly. Um, but, Josiah, I'm wondering if that isn't kind of an extension of the same thing. That is to say, we know what did happen, right? What did happen when he went straight to Minas Tirith with Boromir in the earlier drafts, right? We got into this whole three-way thing which ended up with Boromir defecting because he got passed over and so he ends up turning to evil. Um, Whether it happens that way or a different way, where do we end up? Political nightmare in in Ondor, right? A political mess in any case, right? Um, Things are going to turn out differently than than you think if you went straight down there. so uh this so therefore as i say it's sort of the concept that by resisting that desire to go straight to Minas Tirith and coming here instead it's going to have an impact on your reception at Minas Tirith and and your impact on Minas Tirith when you get there right um but now it's time for battle so this is the first pretty close to the first anyway, uh, concept of the changing the, uh, differentiating, right, between the Eastern Front and the Western Front uh, in the War of the Ring here. Remember before, it was just all one thing at Minas Tirith, right? Minas Tirith was being besieged from by one side, uh, you know, from the armies from Mordor, by the other side from the armies from, uh, uh, from Isengard. The idea that we're going to separate the fight with the armies of Saruman in order to prevent that disastrous siege uh, from both sides from occurring. Um, That's now the move, right? So they're going to attack, right? The light of branding must now be uncovered. So don't go to Winsel. Don't don't go to Edoras, right? The light of branding must be uncovered. There's battle in Rohan, and they're hard put to it in the west. So it sounds like Gandalf is is saying, let's go head straight down and help them in battle against Saruman, right? So they're going to head off the armies that are heading in uh, from the west in order to come and besiege Minas Tirith. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, We still have no worm tongue, right? Still have no worm tongue. How my father ended the White Rider at this stage is not entirely clear to me, but it seems probable that he stopped at Gandalf's words of the Balrog Name him not. And for a moment it seemed that a cloud of pain passed over his face, and he sat silent, looking as old as death. He would then have begun a new chapter, at Gandalf now wrapped himself again in his old tattered cloak, they descended quickly from the high shelf. Can I just say, that would have been an incredibly frustrating cliffhanger to end on. If the White Rider chapter ended that way, ended with name him not. 
He sat silent, looking as old as death. Okay, well, now he's going to wrap up, and now we're going to head off, and we're going to eventually get down to Edoras. That's just kind of amazing to me, right? We can see how actively Tolkien is considering this concept, right? This concept of leaving the story of the Balrog um, untold, right? Um, that's... Uh, um, yeah, exactly, Tony. We're going to keep the name him not passage, which is an awesome passage. But can you imagine just ending the discussion there? Right? Name him not. We're done. <laughs> right? Off we go. Um, that's really kind of uh, uh, kind of amazing. And Brandon, yes, you can see uh, chapter 27 there. Um, we're already way beyond. You can see Tolkien's added way more chapters than he. We're, we're well beyond his original count. Of, I think we're beyond what was going to be his count by the end of the book, as I recall. Um, in any case, pretty close to it. Um, but now, now he adds the Battle of the Peak. So when he does decide, so now he's apparently decided uh, that he's not going to leave it out. He's not going to leave us hanging completely about what happened with Gandalf and the Balrog. Um, but he's going to move it forward. They're, they're, he's going to tell this story while they ride, right? On the way, that is on the way south uh, to Edoras, they ask Gandalf how he escaped. He refuses the full tale, but tells how he passed through fire and water and came to the bottom of the world and there finally overthrew the Balrog, who fled. Gandalf followed up a secret way to Durin's tower on the summit of the mountains of Karandras. There they had a battle, those who beheld it afar thought it was a thunderstorm with lightning. A great rain came down. The Balrog was destroyed, and the tower crumbled, and stones blocked the door of the secret way. Gandalf was left on the mountaintop. The eagle Gwaihir rescued him. He went then to Lothlorien. Galadriel arrayed him in white garments before he left. While Gandalf was on mountaintop, he saw many things, a vision of Mordor, etc., Okay, so now we have the Battle of the Peak. So when the, the when he finally, he, Gandalf, and he, Tolkien, finally decide to be forth, a little more forthcoming and talk about how he, he defeated the Balrog, we get the two-stage thing, right? The battle down at the bottom of the world, and then the Balrog runs away and runs all the way up to the top, and Gandalf follows him up, and then they have their, uh, uh, their final fight, up on top of the mountain. The thunderstorm with lightning and all that stuff, and the Balrog is then destroyed. And destroys, you know, the whole tower and, and stairs coming up um, uh, in his ruin, apparently. And so Gandalf is left trapped on the mountaintop until the eagle Gwaihir rescued him. Notice what we don't get. Notice what doesn't happen. Yes, for those of you Lotro players here, um, clearly the Balrog kited Gandalf all the way up to the top of Karadras, apparently. Um, what don't we get? What's not here? What's absent? Yeah, he still doesn't die! 
there's no evidence that he dies. This is why it's this passage that convinced me that he didn't die before, and that he just, before he just defeated him down underneath, and then ended up wandering and came down out the mountains and down Fangorn, right? So he's just been kind of walking on foot uh, from Moria all the way down to Fangorn, um, which, you know, there's been time to do that, especially since they've been in Lothlorien and stuff. But even here, he doesn't die. He's just trapped. Gandalf was left on the mountaintop. So, uh, we don't yet have his passing out of time and space and being returned, uh, you know, naked on the mountaintop. Uh, that doesn't seem to be happening yet. Um, I love the description. Gandalf's description of the Balrog is so cool, right? This is the, 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 the no-flame version. Here Gandalf described the Balrog, his fire quenched thus. He was a thing of slime, strong as a strangling snake, sleek as ice, pliant as a thong, unbreakable as steel. I love the similes. I wish we kept the similes. Strong as a strangling snake. Of the dark things unguessed that gnaw the world below the deepest delvings of the dwarves, he says, Sauron alone may know of them, or one older than he, which is a, an interesting little change. And after his words, I will bring no report to stain the light of day, the text continues, Little had I guessed the abyss that was spanned by Durin's bridge. Did you not? said Gimli. I could have told you had there been time. No plummet ever found the bottom. Indeed, none that was ever cast therein was ever recovered. Um, uh, Christopher reminds us, of course, that uh, in earlier drafts he was considering making the gulf actually shallow. It just looks deep, but it's not really deep. Uh, but we've clearly uh, we've clearly abandoned that. Um, the form of Gandalf's story in the Two Towers is almost reached in the fair copy of the manuscript, but there remain some differences. He tells that clutching at the Balrog's heel, I set my teeth in it like a hunting hound and tasted venom. That's gross. <laughs> That's freaking... And, and um... I... Uh, I... Uh, uh, no, Brandon, I don't think the dwarves were casting people into the abyss. They were casting plummets into the abyss. That is, like, a plummet. Like, how you measure... Like, to take soundings of the gulf, right? So they... Uh, they, 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 they were chucking things down to try to measure how deep it was, but they never... They never, uh, they, n n nothing that they cast in, they got back. Um, <laughs> sorry, I love that. <laughs> okay, we need a volunteer. Um, when we chuck you over the edge, just keep shouting as long, and, and tell us when you hit the bottom. Um, uh, <laughs> I love that. Um, anyway, um, I... Uh, yeah, yeah, Nancy, I agree. The Balrogs clearly need a uh, like "do not eat" uh, sign on them. Uh, yeah, the idea, now, I wonder if Gandalf is speaking metaphorically, right? But the fact that it tastes like poison uh, suggests that he literally bit it um, and held on with his teeth, uh, which is. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> which is which is disturbing. Yeah, Arthur's imagining when Gandalf and the Balrog get down to the bottom of the pit, they land on a, on a big pile of plummets that the dwarves had thrown overboard, uh, trying to measure it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess biting. Yeah, biting Brandon just doesn't doesn't seem to be illegal in this particular competition. So it's a this is a no uh, a no holds barred competition. But uh, but yeah, I love this this uh, both the similes and the venom thing. You know, give a, a I was about to say a flavor, which is kind of a, uh, an ironic uh, 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 choice of words there. But um, it gives a. a a really different feel for the like what the Balrog is is like underneath, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Gandalf does not say, as in the two. So there's Christopher drawing our attention to this. Gandalf does not say, as in the two towers, naked. I was sent back for a brief time until my task is done. Right. So that's what he does not say in the original draft. But he does say, Naked I returned, this is in the fair copy now, Naked I returned, and naked I lay upon the mountaintop. And of his coming thence to Caras Galadon, born by Guayhir, he says that he found you three days gone, and that he tarried there in the long time, which in that land counts for but a brief hour of the world. Um... Naked I returned from 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 where exactly so he doesn't say that he was sent back but he does say that he returned so I think the idea of his actually dying and returning from death does seem to be emerging as he revises that initial draft um yeah yeah um It still seems to me uncertain. I don't know. I mean, maybe we could tell better, of course, in this passage, since, as Christopher tells us, you know, the the the, the draft and the fair copy are very similar to the published text. So he's not giving us big chunks of text to look at. I would really kind of like to see the full chunk of text here. Um to see the immediate context. What is the sentence that comes in the fair copy that comes before Naked I Returned, right? Um, does he talk about wandering out of time? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, it is possible, Kate, that if he was well burned, his clones, his clothes were burned away. Um, that he could just have been naked naturally, right, because he had lost all of his clothes in the burning, uh, being well burned. That seems possible. Um, but naked I returned, naked I lay, right? That sequence seems to say, I mean, he's returning from somewhere, right? Where? If he's trapped on the mountaintop, where is he returning from? Um, uh, yeah. Kate, I agree. Christopher does get into that. What I'm not giving you isn't important thing, and I, I, it's hard. I mean, this is already a pretty thick book, right? So, 
I totally get the fact that he can't give us the full text every single time. He's got to make choices. But there are a couple moments when I really kind of... And I really wish I could have seen this because it's hard for me to judge, to answer this question that I'm trying to figure out, right? When does Gandalf die? Like, at what point does Gandalf's death enter the story? Because it's not at all... It's, it seems implied that he doesn't die, Um either in those first two versions, either in the I just came out at Methedros and wandered through Fangorn version, or the first Battle of the Peak, um, where he's just trapped up there and then born by the eagle, the parallel being, of course, like being rescued from Orthanc, um, not I've been returned from death and I'm you know lying here naked, uh, sent by Galadriel to, to bring you to, to, to Lothlorien. That doesn't seem to be the case in the draft. Is it now the case? Um... Has he died yet? <sighs> Naked I Return sounds like it, but it's hard for us to be sure given what we're what we're given here. Um, all right, well, we've got the prophecies. I'll save the prophecies. Okay, so we're going to stop here. It's getting super late, so I'll let you guys go. Next week, we will finish. We're going to finish the book next week. Um, no problems at all. Uh, and that will be the end of the Treason of Isengard class, and then we will reconvene a couple weeks later uh, for the next one. Don't forget, if you are in the Council of the Wise, don't forget to get in on the nomination process. Nominate a book, go in, join in the discussion of uh, the books that have already been nominated, and get ready to vote uh, uh, to vote for your uh, for your favorites, for the for the finalists that will be put before the entire electorate uh, for uh, uh, for our next books to discuss, so we will see what happens there. I look forward to seeing your finalist list. Hopefully we'll have a list of finalists, maybe even by next week, so we'll see. Maybe I can announce those, but um, but we'll see. Alright. Oh, uh, James asks, will, will we be talking about the runes? Um, I'm probably not going to do much with the appendix on runes. Maybe if I'm feeling really frisky and have some extra time, we can say a couple things about them, but we're not going to do a detailed study of the appendix on runes. All right. Thanks, everybody. Good night now. See you guys next week to finish the book. Bye now.